I'm gonna take a tangent first. It's not even in my notes. Okay, sorry. You don't know what's on my notes. I don't know why I did that. Um, take a tangent because something just happened that's really, really good. Um, if, you, if you looked and you were reading, uh, there was a word that kept appearing. Flesh. But if you were listening, you never heard that word. The word in Greek is sarx. Can you say sarx? Sarx. It means flesh. But as Marilyn was reading from the NIV, which is not a literal translation, it's a, uh, an interpretive translation, flesh is often mistaken for, uh, or not mistaken, fle- flesh often means in Greek actually the desires of your heart, your sinful desires of your heart. Not all the desires of your heart, but the sinful desires of your heart, your sinful nature. And I think this is important um, because, and like I said, I, mean, I got to do this in one minute because otherwise I'm going to get in trouble. Um, I think this is an important distinction. This is one of those times when I don't like the NRSV because the NRSV translates as, hey, sarx in Greek means flesh. And even though it was culturally something different than what we might think of as flesh today, um, a lot of really bad theology comes from that. Really bad theology. And if we're going to be studying this, this passage, we have to be able to, to, to totally, uh, right at the beginning, nip it in the bud, okay? The bad theology sounds something like this. There's, there's something wrong with your body. There's nothing wrong with your body. Jesus became a human being in a human body. There's nothing wrong with your body. When you disgrace somebody's body, when you comment on somebody's body, when you, when you disrespect them, when you, when you objectify them, um, either in a positive way or in a negative way, when you comment on somebody's weight or, or what, they, you know, what they're wearing, you're actually not doing damage to the flesh. You're doing damage to their created nature, their gift that God has given them. And I hear this all the time. I've heard this even with people in leadership, sometimes at Hope. Where they say, ah, well, we don't, want to be, we don't want to be focused on the flesh. We want to be focused on the spirit. And while that's a good distinction to make biblically, we have to understand that the distinction is not between the body and the spirit. The distinction is between what is, what is bad, which is the sinful nature that all of us have a, a propensity to act self-indulgently at the expense of others, not our physical bodies. Our physical bodies are a gift, and they are to be used as a gift. And so that's an important distinction to make right off the bat because I, I realize now that I'm, I'm glad this is a word speaking in, in time to me. I'm realizing now, man, if I don't mention this right up front, then everything that I say might be taken in the wrong way. Like I'm saying there's something wrong with our physical bodies because this, this, is, this is how bad it is. A lot of our, our young people, or I'm saying anybody under 30, we have very negative body image issues. And that's, and a lot of people say, well, that, you know what, that's from social media and, and Photoshop and magazines and Vogue and commercials and media. And yes, those things are, are, are bad. You airbrush somebody enough and they're not even a human being anymore. Let's not even talk about Channing Tatum's workout routines that he gets to look like that, right? The guy is huge. You ever meet him in person, he's going to squish you with his hands. Okay? Let's not even talk about the fact that he does, he spends more hours than you do at work just working out. And then just pretends like it's just natural, right? Of course, that stuff's bad. But actually, 
when it comes, it comes, I think, from a place right at the top of our society with church. Misunderstanding of this passage. We say bodies are bad. And then everything that follows beyond that is just feeding into that narrative which we've been taught in a place that's supposed to teach us positive reinforcement for our self-image. So that just first thing, it's not, you're not going to hear it mentioned again today. But as you're hearing this, hey, whenever you hear that, okay, I'm supposed to live out, not out of the flesh, but out of the body. I like that NIV translation better. What we're contrasting here, the dichotomy that we're making here is not the body and the spirit, it's our sinful nature. And so when you read this, when I read this for the rest of this, understand, if you hear that, if you hear me seemingly criticizing the body in ways that I don't even know, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. I'm brought up in it too. So just know that that's present. But now I want to talk about something else. Fall. Which is the best season. How many people think fall is the best season? Yeah, see, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, some people are like summer people. Nobody's a spring person. You wouldn't live in Chicago. We don't have such a thing. But it just goes, it goes from 14 degrees to 65, like immediately, right? But we get fake spring in the fall. So we all love fall, right? The weather is bearable in Chicago. The only time of the year. Pumpkin spice related items. I know, I know, it's gross. I know, Every, nobody likes pumpkin spice. But everybody, when you smell the pumpkin spice, you think about the other fall things, right? Halloween is Matt's favorite holiday, okay? As a parent, I love fall because Halloween Matt is excited. Matt has a bedtime story every night. You know, what, you know what, he, what he wants me to talk about? Halloween. What's it going to be like on Halloween? What am I going to dress up like, Dad? He got a Hulk costume at Savers for $1.50. You don't think he's going to be the Hulk for Halloween? He is. He didn't even know what the Hulk was, but now he does. <laughs> Thanksgiving, that's Dad's favorite holiday, right? Matt understands it's all about food. I love food. Football, I talked about that a couple weeks ago. Football as a sport is starting. People love football. We're a little nuts about it here, but that's okay. Double donk. I'm not going to remember. Oh, no, no, shh. not going to remember. Okay. New season, new season. We're okay. Playoff baseball, if you're a Cubs fan. I'm sorry, I had to do it. I had to do it. Sorry. <laughs> you, guys are, you, guys are, you guys will be back once your Cubs prospects that you got Quintana for. Yeah, once they grow up and become good players, then you'll be okay. But the fall, the best part about fall, I think, not any of those things. We'll play off baseball. But no, not any of those things. It's harvest. This is the term that is historically associated with fall. We only talk about fall because we are an unfarmer culture. If we were farmers, we wouldn't talk about fall. We would talk about harvest. That's why when you look at hymns, they always talk about harvest. They don't talk about fall because most of the people are farmers. Farm harvest-related activities like apple picking, apple cider, apple cider donuts, the best part of apple cider. These are the keys of fall to me and maybe to you, I hope. Fall is the season of fruit. Not summer fruit, but fruit that's taken a long time to get where it is. Fruit that has some legs. 
And so that's why the fruit of the Spirit is what we wanted to talk about. Because fall fruit, it's a thing. And the fruit of the Spirit, not like summer fruit, which can just grow up. I don't know if any of you have raspberry bushes. They, like, you get a raspberry in like three days, okay? It goes from being like a little tiny green thing you can't even identify to a big plump raspberry. Apples, they aren't like that. Apples have some legs. Apples need time to grow. That's how the fruit of the Spirit are. They don't appear overnight. They're slowly and steadily cultivated, like a good fall fruit. And it's important to talk about the fruit of the Spirit because for Paul, the proof of a life in Christ is in the proverbial pudding. The saying actually is, which is actually even better for this illustration, we now say the proof is in the pudding. But the original saying is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Whether the pudding was good or not, you only know until you eat it. This pudding looks really good. Most likely that's glue. (laughs) Because in pictures, when they want to make something look good, sometimes they have to do really bad things to it to make it look good. And so the proof of the pudding is in the eating. In the same way as summer fruit. In the same way as a life in Christ. It might look really good, but until you taste it, you don't really know. And that is what Paul, I think that if you, if you were going to say the entirety of Pauline theology, which is a very bold statement I'm making. Those of you who know how much Paul has written, and even more so, how much has been written about what Paul has written, understand how egregious it is for me to say the entirety of Pauline theology. But I'm going to say it. The entirety of Pauline theology, for at least in my interpretive framework, in my interpretive tradition, comes down to this concept. That the proof of the pudding, the proof of a life in Christ, is in the product. And Paul uses a very clear metaphor for this, fruit. For Paul, everything is about fruit. It's all about the fruit. If you take nothing away from today, because we're going to be talking about the first fruit, which is love. You guys have heard me preach about love a whole lot of times, and probably much more before me. So if you take nothing else away, I want you to take away this one concept. Lock it away in your brain. Hold on to it for the rest of the day, the rest of the week, perhaps even this whole sermon series. For Paul, it is all about the fruit. All about the fruit. The book of Galatians, which is my favorite book in the Bible, you should know by now that it's my favorite book in the Bible because we've preached on it this passage three times. I did twice and Evan did once. Three times, because this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. The book of Galatians is my favorite book in the Bible because it is the book where Paul is communicating to a church that he would have never communicated to before he met Jesus. Paul was very Jewish. The church at Galatia, very Gentile. But Paul has this road to Damascus experience. He, belie- he, he sees Jesus sitting on the throne, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, you know, Lord, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. And, and he believes in Jesus. But notably, on the road to Damascus experience, he's never, like, he's never told Gentiles are okay. 
he comes to that conclusion later, that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are accepted into the kingdom of God. And it's all about the fruit for Paul. Understand that. That has a message for us today. I don't know what the message is for us today, but it must be important. It's all about the fruit for Paul. He sees the workings of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Gentiles, and he adjusts his interpretive framework accordingly. It's a very, very scary concept for those of us who have a high view of Scripture. That Paul would go back to the Old Testament given new information and look at it differently and choose to interpret it differently. And what happens is Paul winds up finding this thread that goes all the way from Genesis 1 all the way through the life of Jesus. The Gentiles were always part of the family just in waiting, waiting to be married to God's chosen people through Christ. He sees the thread, but he only sees the thread. He only goes back and looks because he sees the fruit first. And so if you take away nothing else, take away this, that for Paul, all of his theology, all of his ideas about who's in and who's out and who's on the inside and all the things that we worry about today, who's right theologically and who's wrong theologically, he doesn't care. For him, it's about the fruit. And when he sees the fruit, he's forced to reassess. He's forced to look again at his interpretive frameworks and challenge them. Because he says the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Once he tastes the life of these Gentile Christians and sees all of the fruits of the Spirit that we'll be talking about for the next several weeks, when he sees all of those fruits of the Spirit lived out in their lives, he's forced to say, I gotta figure out why Jesus is working in them. Instead of saying, it must be a trick. And so, the questions that we're gonna ask, oh, we got to that slide somehow. Okay, that's fine. The questions that we're gonna ask this, this sermon series about each of the fruits of the Spirit, maybe a couple combined, but each of the fruits of the Spirit, is what is the fruit all about, that fruit, and what makes the fruit? How do we get the fruit? Because that's an important piece of this. And so we're going to talk the first, this first week just briefly, and I'm going to give you the, the five to eight minute version. Love, the first fruit of the Spirit. Because it's all about the fruit. And love, the word agape here, I've, I've talked about this before, but this is intrinsically a godly love. In the Old Testament, the word agape is almost never used when they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Greek is a Greek word. They almost never used the word agape for human interaction, human love. They almost never do. I'll go only a couple times. But they use it unsparingly when it talks about God's love for humanity. It's a godly love. It's an active, self-sacrificing love. 
It's a steadfast, ever-chasing, unfailing, unconditional kind of love. It's not romantic love. It's not friendship. It's not even biological. It's chosen, but it chooses us. And so the word for love is agape, and it's this big love. And it makes a lot of sense, actually, that when we talk about the first fruit of the Spirit, the, Spirit, the, the, the first fruit that's born out of a relationship with the Holy Spirit in our lives, that the word agape would come up first. A lot of people have tried to take these, uh, these groupings of words and lump them together, like uh, love, joy, and peace, those are things that happen in your mind, and then patience, kindness, goodness, those are like... Um, uh, those are like dispositions and, and uh, self-control and the other, those are, those are about your body. No, there's no such distinction in the text. There's only one distinction in the text and that, that is that love is placed first in the list so, and, and it is placed there so that it builds a foundation for all of the other gifts. It is the first fruit and that's the first, that's, uh, whoop, whoop, that's the third one. <laughs> I'm going to go to that one next. Love is the first fruit. That's the second piece that you need to know. First piece, love, agape love, that's a godly love. We don't have the, the ability to do it in and of ourselves. It's only through our relationship with God that we can do it. Second thing, it's a gift, or it's a first fruit. It's the first fruit. It's placed first in the list because it, pr- it provides the foundation for all the other fruits to be built on. I can give you many examples of Paul saying exactly this, not in this text, but elsewhere. He says in this passage that Marilyn read three times, he uses the word love. He doesn't mention any of the other fruits of the Spirit at all. But he mentions love three times before he mentions it in the list. In 1 Corinthians 13, which we usually read at weddings starting at verse 4, verses 1 through 3 start, If I speak in tongues of mortals and angels, but I don't have love, agape, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So even if I do the things that seem to be the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit in this case, but I don't have love, they're not actually the gifts of the Spirit. And if I have prophetic powers, I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge. This is what we're guilty of in Western culture. We have all the answers. And if I have faith as to move mountains, but I have, do not have love, I have nothing. If I give away all my possessions, I hand over my body so that I may boast, I'll be burned as a martyr in some translation. But I do not have love, I gain nothing. And then in the passage that Marilyn read for us, for the whole law is summed up by a single commandment, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Paul builds his framework on love. And the third premise here, I'm going to go back here, is that love, agape love, is a gift. And if I said, the first thing I wanted you to take away was that, or the only thing I wanted you to take away if you took away nothing else was that it's all about the fruit for Paul, this is probably the second one. That love, it's a gift. You don't do anything to get it. It's one of the key pieces of gift-giving culture. If you did something to receive a gift, it's not a gift. If you're Mayor Daly, you got that contract by doing this and that, that wasn't a gift. That was a bribe. 
It's a difference, right? We all know that. Southside politicians here. Agape love, it's not something, according to Paul, that you can simply do because you want to. You can't will it. It is active. You do things because of it, but you can't fake that stuff. We think of love as an emotion or a feeling. Agape love is not an emotion or a feeling. It might cause you to have emotions and feelings, but it is not a feeling. It can't be conjured up. It can only be touched on, grasped, as we come in contact with the Holy Spirit. It makes a lot of sense, actually, if you think about it. That if God is love, it says in Scripture, God is love, and the Holy Spirit is God, that unless we have the Holy Spirit in us, we cannot love in a godly way. And so the only place that you can receive it, and this is the, probably the most important part of, of the fruit, this first one, the only way that you can receive a fruit of the Spirit is as a gift. You can't do anything for it. It's not about your effort. It's not about your repentance or your guilt even though we're trying to lift those things up, like, oh, if they're guilty, they'll act better. It's not how agape love works. It's not about your wisdom or your understanding or your self-sacrifice or your generosity. It is only out of love, which is your connection to the divine creator of all things, as he is embodied in the Holy Spirit, that you can do any of it. So here's my encouragement for you this week. So you think about agape love, Love that is a gift. Love that pours out. That is the first of the fruits that lays the foundation for the rest. Stop trying to make fruit happen. Christians, all over the place, not just you. If anybody's listening online, stop trying to make fruit happen. Stop trying to work it. That's the law. Trying to make it happen. Stop trying to produce in yourself that which can only be gifted to you by God. Just just spend less time trying to figure it all out, more time living it all out. Stop spending time digging and searching and asking for the thing and just dig and search and ask for God. It'll be added Let the transformation happen because the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Not because we can prove it to ourselves, but because the real thing, the actual connection to God, cannot be artificially created. When you have it and it produces the fruit, it's clear. So join me in seeking, friends, not searching for that which we cannot find. but seeking by emptying ourselves so that we can be found by love. Invite the worship team up. Heavenly Father, we ask for you to be present in our lives as we go forward from this place. We ask for you to make it clear to us that your love, as ever-chasing and amazing as it is, cannot be grasped by us through sheer effort. We will not get it by going to church enough or by giving enough. 
or by serving enough. We will only get it by connecting to you, the source of all things, because you, God, are love, and you show us. So let us look in the mirror honestly and ask ourselves, do we have the fruit? If we don't, let us seek it. And if we do, let us rejoice and live in it. Amen.